an art critic named Margaret Kerrigan writes this of the Renaissance master Michelangelo. When it comes to the high Renaissance, Michelangelo is as high as it gets. A peerless sculptor, expert draftsman, and reluctant but skilled painter, he was not only one of the best-known artists of his day, but probably remains one of the best-known artists ever. He could be a bit of a hothead. His rivalries with Leonardo da Vinci and Raphael are well-documented, and he stormed out of the Sistine Chapel in a huff more than once. But he was so good, not even his reputation could drag him down. His contemporaries called him Il Divino, meaning the Divine One, because they deemed his masterful workmanship unparalleled among mere mortals. To witness the work of Michelangelo was to witness the work of a creative master. Now this morning, I want to invite you to explore the work of the ultimate creative master, the truly divine one who has no moral shortcomings, the Lord of all creation, the Lord God. Last Sunday, we started a new sermon series, and the title of this sermon series is God the Creator and Redeemer. And in this sermon series, we are journeying our way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 1 through 11. And as we trek through these 11 chapters, uh, like we typically do, we're going to preach through the passages. We will do the occasional camp out or deep dive on a specific theme. So for example, the image of God, we're going to read it in today's passage, but I'm not going to treat it. I'm going to treat it in further detail next week. There is sufficient text to deal with this morning on God's order, his symmetry, his beauty and creation. And so we'll do a little bit of a deep dive on the image of God and its implications next Sunday. So God the creator and redeemer. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1, very helpfully found on page 1 in the Bibles on your chairs. Genesis 1, and if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we love to give free Bibles away, so there is um, a bookcase in a lobby with black hardcover Bibles. Please take one. If you know a friend who needs one, by all means, get one for them as well. Now this morning I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, uh, which covers the entirety of what is known as the first account of creation. There is a, another one that comes, Genesis 2, 4 and onward. You can think of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 as the prologue. God is the only speaker. It's the introduction, the prologue of creation. And then Genesis 2, 4 and onward is chapter 1, where you actually get dialogue among characters. But this is, this is a, a prologue or a hymn of praise that we see here in Genesis chapter 1, 1, verses 2, 3. Let's read this together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
Now, the title of this sermon is The Master at Work and at Rest. The Master at Work and at Rest. So we'll organize our time in this text by exploring five characteristics of the master's work. Five characteristics of the master's work. Now, we'll move through those briskly, leaving some room at the end to address a rather debated, a hot topic, and we'll address that in a moment. So, five characteristics of the master's work, and then we're going to dive into a little bit of a hotter topic at the end. All right, so last Sunday, I, I, I spoke at length about the genre and the purpose of Genesis chapter 1, this first table of creation, as it's known. Uh, this creation account is highly poetic, deliberately stylized with repetition, with imagery, with symmetry. It's a beautiful hymn of praise written by Moses to invite God's creation to worship him, to praise him. And what I want to do with these five characteristics of the master's work of creation is just follow the literary contours of the text. See the imagery. See the repetition. See the symmetry, because all of those literary features are creating emphasis in the text for us to see. So we're going to kind of follow those literary features and tease out what they're emphasizing. First, an introductory image. The Spirit of God hovering over the initial stages of his creation. Let's read again Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, as we will see, like a mother eagle hovering over her nest. So verse 1 is the summary statement of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how we introduced this series Last week, I preached the entirety of the sermon on that one verse. It's an introductory statement that essentially sums up everything that happens thereafter. And then in verse 2, picks up at some very early point, undetermined, we don't exactly know, but it's very early in God's work of creation, after he had evidently spoken earth into existence and water into existence, right? As you're reading it, where does that come from? Well, God had spoken it into existence. So it's at some early yet undetermined point in his creation. And the image comes into focus, though. This is where Moses is drawing our attention. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering over, or you could say fluttering. A rare Hebrew verb found elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. A little word study here, a little concordance study. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Let me, let me read this. This is Moses describing the Lord's care for his people Israel, bringing them into existence, caring for them tenderly. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. The Lord is like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, there's the verb, or hovers over its young, its hatchlings, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on its pinions. Oh, it's a beautifully tender protective and powerful picture 
of the Lord God Almighty caring for his people Israel after they had been brought into existence, their hatchlings. He's just hovering over them in those early stages. And likewise, that imagery is picked up here in the second verse in all of the Bible. The Spirit of God hovering over his creation as it prepares to hatch, he's just protective and powerful, hovering over. It's a beautiful image of God's care, his power, and his protection as he's bringing his creation into being. We must grasp the goal of the imagery, the literary features here. God is a good, tender, powerful, and protective God who loves his creation, hovering over it as Mother Eagle hovers over her nest. Five characteristics of the master's creation. Here's the first. The master's command. The master's command. What is the most often repeated phrase in Genesis chapter 1? And God said. Three words. And God said. And God said. Ten times. Ten times. In chapter 1. The repetition is creating emphasis. And the emphasis is God's word. His command creates. He speaks and it comes into being. He's that powerful. God speaks and things appear. He creates by the power of his word. It's attested elsewhere in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And as we continue to lean into the New Testament and allow scripture to interpret scripture, which is a healthy thing to do, as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you get clarity on the earlier parts because the New Testament and the unfolding parts of the Bible actually shed interpretive light on the previous parts. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, God's word, the divine message with God the Father and God the Spirit in the beginning. And it's the word of Jesus, as we see here in John chapter 1, that actually speaks and creates. God commands and things come into being. He alone is God. His command is also witnessed through the naming that exists here in chapter 1. Notice just a few examples. God called the light day, and God called the darkness night. And God called the expanse, that is the sky, heaven. And God called the dry land, earth. And God called the waters under the expanse, seas. When you name something, what does it communicate? When you name something... It communicates that that something belongs to you and you have authority over it. God is naming that which he creates because all of it belongs to him and he has domain, authority, rightful ownership of all of it. His command, his authority is on display here. This is the emphasis. God creates at his command. His supreme authority is seen over his work of creation. The master's command. Secondly, the master's design. The master's 
design. In this hymn of praise, there exists a beautiful symmetry. This text is highly structured and balanced. There are six corresponding days of creation. In days one through three, God creates habitats. And then in days four through six, he creates corresponding inhabitants to occupy the habitats. You see the the, the symmetry here, the, the balance here. So in day four, God creates the sun and the moon to occupy and to rule over day one when he created day and night. And then in day five, God creates birds and fish to occupy the habitat he created in day two, the seas. And then in day six, God creates land animals to occupy the habitat he created in day three. And then these symmetric days give way to day seven, the actual climax of this hymn of praise, the crescendo of the hymn, is the day when God rests. And we'll talk about, talk about how and why that is the climax of the passage of the hymn of praise. There's great balance here in order and design. It reflects God's glory. His, he's a God of order and structure. It's, it's a reflection of his, his goodness and harmony. He creates things that make sense. His, he's a God of symmetry and, and balance, not of chaos. We also see his order and structure at the conclusion of each day. Notice how days one through six end with the same phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. There was evening, and there was morning the second day, all the way through the sixth day. Very Hebrew, by the way, because when do Hebrew days begin? Sundown, the end at sun up, sunrise. There was evening, that's the start of the day. There was morning, that's the end of the day in the Hebrew mind. The first day, the second day. There's just structure, predictability, balance in the text. All of it pointing to God's design, his perfect order that gives him glory. The goal of creation is the glory of God. It's an invitation, a call for us to worship, us as creation to worship the creator. And when we behold his order, his beautiful design and symmetry, it calls forth worship, points to his glory. So the master's command, the master's design, thirdly, the master's creativity. The master's creativity. Read Genesis 1 and just sit back and appreciate the vast array that God creates, the diversity, the differences in the things that he creates, it's all reflective of him and his character. The diversity of habitats, the sky, the sea, and the land. The diversity of inhabitants, winged creatures, sea creatures, land creatures. The diversity of vegetation, fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, which is their seed according to its kind. According to its kind. What's, what rivals and God said with repetition in the passage? According to its kind, according to its kind. Ten times in the passage, ten times. What's the emphasis there? There's all kinds of creatures and habitats in God's creation. There's diversity. He's extraordinarily 
creative, impossible to plumb the depths of his creative mind. That's what this emphasis is drawing our attention to, the breadth, staggering breadth of his creativity. We see and appreciate the vast array and the, the creativity as we look around in our fallen world. Sin has corrupted this world, but his creativity still shines forth in the beauty of a Amazon rainforest, in a, in a trek of some 14er out in Colorado. You see the, the grandeur and the array of his creativity. It's everywhere, even in a world that's corrupted by sin. Even though creation groans for redemption to be revealed, Romans 8, it still shines forth his beauty, his character, his creativity. Just appreciate it. Don't walk through your life with your head buried in the sands of your circumstances. Lift your eyes to see the goodness and the creativity of God. It's all around us. Lift your heart in worship to him. The master's command, the master's design, the master's creativity. Number four, the master's delight. The master's delight. We witness the master's joy, his good pleasure in his creation through the, repeat, the repeated phrase, and it was good, and it was good, six times, and it was good, and it was good. What does this phrase spoken over his creation mean? It's God's determination of his creation. It's a, it's a moral assessment. It was good, pure, right. And it's his joy in that which he created. I like it. I like it. And on day seven, I really like it. It was very good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You see, God delights in that which he creates. You hearken back to that first image in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, of Mother Eagle hovering, protecting, watching over, guarding her hatchlings, and so it is with God. He looks after he creates in each day. And he says, I take pleasure in it. It's good. I delight in it. This is the character of our creator, God. He loves that which he creates. It's good inherently. He cares for it. He's intentional with it. And yes, we're not, we've not gotten there yet, but we will in a few short weeks in Genesis 3 when the wheels fall off the bus of creation because of our earliest ancestors, our sin. You and I would have done the same thing, by the way. God still continues to send out his care and his love and provides a way, implements a plan for us to be recreated in his son, Christ Jesus, so that we can be named good and pure again after tragically falling away. That's God's character. He's Mother Eagle, protecting, providing, watching over, seeing his plan to completion. He will one day say it is good again, even in our fallen world, because of Christ. What, God, what moved God to create and to redeem sinful human beings? His good pleasure. His good pleasure. His delight. That's what we see here. 
the master's command, the master's design, the master's creativity, the master's delight. Fifth and final characteristic, the master's rest. The master's rest. Day seven, as I mentioned, stands out among all the days of creation. It's the climax, the crescendo of the hymn of praise. It's what it all points to. And what happens on day seven is that God rests. Now, does he rest because he was exhausted? No. He never grows weary. He never grows tired. He rests, friends, to set a pattern for his creatures, us. To rest and to worship him. To rest in him and to worship him. You see, God marks off this seventh day. He sets it apart as holy, as a day of rest. The, the word there is Shabbat, Sabbath, that high day on the Hebrew week where the Hebrews gathered around God and his word and community and reminded themselves who they belonged to, who delighted in him, who rested in him, who found their belonging in him. You see, the Sabbath is simply a day to reorient your life, to remind you that you belong to God and you need him. And it is exceedingly foolish to live your life in self-reliance because you will end up broken down along the road of life. The Sabbath is a way to cease striving and to know that the Lord is God and that you belong to him and you need to worship him. That's where your fuel, fuel comes from. That's where this hymn of praise climaxes. The Sabbath rest, not because God was tired, but because he knew his people needed to reorient themselves. They ha have a day. Interestingly, the seventh day has no evening and morning the seventh day. Why do you think that's so? Because it continues on forever. There is no evening, no morning, unlike the first six. Because we're invited to an eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath, an eternal worship of God. Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is the Sabbath rest for weary, sin-laden pilgrims. Jesus is the one that we find that ultimate rest and restoration of our idolatrous hearts. It's Jesus who invites us into eternity of worshiping God, who allows us, in fact, provides the way for us to have this eternal rest and life of worship with God forever and ever. This day will not end. It will echo into eternity. There's no evening and no morning. It continues on. The master's command, the master's design, the master's creativity, the master's delight, and the master's rest. Five characteristics of the master's work of creation. For the remainder of our time, I want to address a key question that if you've had any conversations among yourselves or with perhaps somebody who is skeptical, maybe doesn't consider themselves a Christian, we, we've got to ask this and, and tackle it as best we can. Is evolution compatible with God's work of creation? Now, you're thinking it right now. I thought it all week as I'm preparing for this. Is evolution compatible with God's work of creation? So first, let's just give this a, a reasonable treatment. Definition of terms. 
evolution as a process, sometimes called microevolution, versus evolution as an all-encompassing theory, also known as macroevolution. Very important to define our terms. Evolution as a process, kind of a cyclic process of adaptation and development among the species, versus evolution as an all-encompassing theory. We've, we've got to define our terms. So evolution as a process, or microevolution, is the adaptation and development of certain species over the course of time that could, could conceivably be empowered and guided by a creator God. Versus evolution as an all-encompassing theory. A book I would point you to is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, chapter 6, unpacks this very helpfully. And sometimes this evolution as an all-encompassing theory is called philosophical naturalism or Darwinism, macroevolution, as I mentioned. Here are the three tenets of it. Everything, everything is evolved and had no input, intervention, or oversight from an intelligent personal being. Everything is evolved and had no input, intervention, and oversight from an intelligent personal being. Number two, every species, person, living thing has evolved from one simple life form. Every species, person, living thing has evolved from one simple life form. And then thirdly, everything about us, our religion, our sexuality, our morality is a product of evolution. Everything, which is why it's called, considered an all-encompassing theory. Brothers and sisters, it requires faith and lots of it to believe in evolution as an all-encompassing theory. Tim Keller writes, when evolution is turned into an all-encompassing theory, we no longer are in the arena of science. We have crossed into philosophy at that point. You can't prove those tenets of evolution as an all-encompassing theory. You cannot be a Christian and believe in evolution as an all-encompassing theory. You cannot be a Christian and believe in macroevolution. Why is that? Because it denies the very existence of, and activity of God. However... You can be a Christian and believe in evolution as a process over time, an instrument in God's repertoire of creation that he freely cho chose to utilize in his work of creation. Now, that might be uncomfortable to some. I understand that. And we can talk a whole lot more about it. But we need to define these terms. One of the key questions in this discussion is, how do we understand time in Genesis chapter 1? How do we understand time in Genesis chapter 1? This is an area where many say the Bible is incompatible with science. So natural science suggests that the earth is old, like billions of years old. And so if we take Genesis 1 literally as 24-hour days, as we know days today, it would seem to suggest that the earth is younger, right? Well, what do you make of this? We have to ask the question that we asked last week. What was Moses, the original author's intent in writing Genesis 1? Is it to speak to chronological time as we understand it today? 
What was Moses seeking to communicate? The chronology doesn't add up. Notice God creates vegetation on day three, and he creates the sun that would feed that vegetation on day four. That, that timeline linearly doesn't make sense. You would, you would need the, the, the sun before to feed the vegetation. There's something else is going on here. Time and chronology is not the point. Worship is. Worship is. We are invited to lift our eyes through this hymn of praise and behold the creator and his majesty, his beauty, his goodness. As I mentioned, Genesis 1, you have six corresponding days. Days 1 through 3, God creates those habitats. And then 4 through 6, he creates inhabitants to occupy and rule over the habitats. And day seven is the crescendo, the climax of it all, where we're invited to enjoy his peace, his rest, and restoration forever. So Genesis 1 is a call to worship. It's a hymn of praise, not a timeline of chronology. You've got to read scripture in accordance with its original intent. The scripture says that God is not bound by time. God works in and above time. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day to God. He is unlike us. All time is present to God and available at any moment. He works non-linearly. He is able to work in and outside of time. Now, there are some segments of Christianity that say, if you don't believe that the earth is young, some four to 6,000 years old, and that the days of creation are literally 24-hour periods like we know them today, you're not a Christian. And friends, the Bible doesn't bind consciences like that. You can be a Christian and believe that the earth is four to 6,000 years old. You can be a Christian and believe that the earth is older than that. You can be a Christian and believe that God uses the tool of evolution as a process, microevolution. You can believe you could be a Christian and believe that He doesn't do that. There's there's flexibility in Genesis chapter one, given its intent. It's a hymn of praise, not a science book. So I think we need to give each other a little bit of space here and turn down the heat that, that, that raises in our collars in this debate and in this discussion. The text of Genesis 1 does not insist on a young earth or an old earth. There's some, there's some freedom here in the scripture. Author Henri Blochet writes, Whether God created instantaneously or he created over longer periods of time through guiding evolution as a developmental process, either way, God is glorified. Instantaneous events of creation draw attention to his power and his freedom, but the ordinary course of events through a longer process is no less dependent upon him and does not fail to bear witness to him. A simple illustration would be God can heal the human body at his word. Boom, you're healed. He does that. And God can heal and restore the body over a period of medical treatment that takes place over time. It all points to God's glory and his goodness because who gave men and women minds to do the research and to come up with these treatments? He did. Amen. 
the master and his work. I want to conclude with just one comment, hearkening back to God's design, his fine-tuning in creation. The universe is incomprehensibly fine-tuned to support life. I just want to share with you a quote that I have found helpful uh, over the years. This this is, again, uh, a lecture by Tim Keller. I, I have found him very helpful in this whole discussion. Tim Keller writes, the most fundamental, fundamental characteristics and constants of our cosmos, the relative strengths of gravity and the forces that operate inside atomic nuclei, as well as the masses and relative abundance of different particles. I'm speaking entirely what I do not know. I need to get Evan Walsh up here. The Earth's distance from the sun, the degree of tilt on its axis, are perfectly calibrated to support organic life. This is sometimes called the anthropic principle, or sometimes the Goldilocks principle. Not the big bowl, not the the little bowl, the medium, just right. It's just right. Creation is just right to support life as we know it. The odds against those fundamental regularities and constants happening by sheer chance are smaller than one in a trillion. Atheists are right in pointing out that this fine-tuning argument does not prove that a creator exists. For instance, maybe, let's say hypothetically, that there was a big bang, and at the big bang, an almost infinite number of parallel universes were created all at once. And we just happen to be in the universe that happens to have everything just right. But consider this illustration of a poker game in which the dealer deals himself 24 straight aces, straight hands of four aces. As the other players are about to pound him for cheating, the dealer says, whoa, 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 wait. You can't prove I'm cheating. There are a trillion parallel universes, and we just happen to be in the one where the chances of dealing 20 straight hands of four aces has been realized. He is strictly right. It is possible that there are trillions of universes, and this is the one universe in which those aces are dealt. But it's a lot more plausible to believe that he's cheating. The other players will still slug him and take him out. No one lives their life the way the dealer suggests. In the same way, the existence of all those fine-tuned constants in creation is strong evidence that God exists. No one lives their life that way on that kind of one in a trillion chance. Why would you and I gamble our lives, our very eternal destinies, on an infinitely remote probability? Why would we do that? Such an approach to life is untenable. No one does that. But ironically, people blindly believe that and go throughout life. Such an approach to life, such a infinitesimally small chance points not to an intellectual problem with God, but to an emotional problem with God. There is something in your heart, in your past, some hang-up, some hurt that is hindering you from trusting in a creator God who is good and who loves you. There's something else going on in those situations. And friends, as we go through this study, Our goal was just to look with those eyes of faith to the creator God who is fine-tuned, who's designed the universe to support life, who does it with great delight and joy, and who invites us to worship him.
no matter what our past is, no matter what that hurt is for you, that hang up, God says, I've dealt with it at the cross because at the cross, through faith in Christ, you're recreated in him. You're made a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's the best news that you will ever hear. No matter your brokenness, you can be put back together again, restored by the power of Jesus Christ at work. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. It's available. Come and receive it. Come and walk with this creator God who delights in his creation, delights in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Oh, what a privilege it is to study it. God, help us. We all have questions. God, help us to be diligent. Help us to work to our best ability, sifting and studying, researching and having conversation. But in the end, Lord, would you give us faith to believe that you exist and that you've created the heavens and the earth for your glory. Thank you for our church community. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for Jesus Christ who makes worship possible, who allows us by faith to be new creatures in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.